Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. of Advent. Uh, and if you are unfamiliar, perhaps you didn't grow up with Advent as a normal practice in your church tradition, or maybe you just didn't grow up Christian and this is a new thing. Why are we lighting candles? Well, uh, the first two weeks of Advent signify different elements. So the first week is hope, second week is peace, and this week for week three is joy. And so you already heard a little bit of the scripture out of Luke chapter two from, from, Solly, from Solomon, who got to share a lengthy piece of scripture. He is so good. That's a, there's some tough words in there. I, I, yeah. I like sent over uh, the scripture to Margaret and I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's like Kyrenius is in there. So that, that's a mouthful. But it is uh, a time where we get to focus on these different pieces. Hope, peace, joy, and, and, and love is the, is the fourth week that we look towards. And I think joy is interesting in this season. We've been in this pandemic reality for almost two years now, and I think it is far easier to equate our experience of frustration, unrest, exhaustion with anything but joy. Joy doesn't really seem like the likely fit for this season. It doesn't seem like the adjective you'd use to describe your response or my response in the midst of it. But yet, in this time of Advent, this is not simply a time where we're looking towards Christmas and on Christmas Day, you are going to find joy. On Christmas Eve, you'll start to feel a little bit joyful before the culmination of midnight hits and then suddenly joy is upon your heart. Joy to the world. Everyone's so excited. Now, joy is meant to be something that we are invited into in this season to be ongoing, enduring, everlasting. But yet, our experience would seem to say something far different. So I think there's a lot of questions to ask in the midst of this. Uh, If you were to simply read the Bible as as a moralistic rule book, I think you miss the beauty that it provides when it comes to what I would say is in many sense the opposite of joy, and it is suffering and struggle. The Bible is raw, and it shows every cut and scrape of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, Atheism doesn't really have a lot to say about suffering and, and, and struggle, Buddhism would have us believe that it's karma and it's right. A new age worldview would have us push mind over matter. Christian science would have us see pain as an illusion. But the Bible shows us that Christianity is the only worldview and the only faith system that would actually have us lean into suffering. And in fact, rejoice in it. And this idea is present all the way throughout the Bible. And the Advent story doesn't, isn't just the start of it in the Gospels. We've talked about it. We looked in the book of Genesis. We've seen uh, passages out of Isaiah. And this week we're going to be reading out of Micah, chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. We're looking at the shepherd king 
on this third week of Advent. So if you could turn your attention to the big screen in the sky, we're going to read out of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. But it says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And if we remember the passage that was read for us out of Luke chapter 2 verses 8 to 11, Let me remind you, it says there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. For today in the the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Do you see that? In Bethlehem. The least of the tribes. Though you are small, you will find great joy. Not the glitz and glamour of Jerusalem. Not the notoriety of a political figure or a public figure. But a, but a shepherd king. And this is the joy that we bring to the world. And I think part of the problem that we encounter when dealing with this particular passage of Scripture, which comes up every Christmas. Every Christmas, you're probably going to hear this to some degree. Some of our familiarity with the text breeds complacency into the actual awe that it is meant to invoke. Because if you were to ask yourself, what leads to joy in your life? More often than not, I find myself responding about those moments of grandeur. Of those, of those big celebrations, of those significant experiences, I think we're prone to actually catch ourselves rejoicing in the bigger things, in those things which feel momentous, and in our Western culture especially, that which feels like success. That is when joy is invoked. I accomplished something, therefore I'm even allowed to feel joy. Now, I'm a a self-professing optimist, whatever that means. Uh, But when it comes to self-evaluation, I can be incredibly critical of myself. Whether it's listening to a previous talk, uh, preparation for how we do things on a Sunday, playing a game, participating in a sport. I've always been really highly critical of myself. And, And this is what I find myself doing far too often, that my experience of a moment overrides my general understanding of it. I'm more emotional than I'd like to admit. I recently did a, uh, an assessment uh, with a group of pastors, and it's called Berkman's. I don't know, perhaps you've heard of it, but I had the opportunity to do it, and I got to sit down with somebody on their team to kind of go through what did all of my answers to the questions indicate. And in one area in particular, they said it far more uh, eloquently than this, but they basically indicated that I have a lot of emotions. (laughs) And despite whatever 
image that I project or portray or however I present myself, there are a lot of emotions bubbling beneath the surface. And what, what I've recognized for myself is that these emotions, whether or not I show them, they have an impact. What, one of the things that I always had growing up, Saturday mornings with my dad, we would be driving to a sporting event of some sort somewhere. Often it was basketball. So Saturday mornings with dad on the way to basketball, we show up to the game, shoes, jersey tucked, got warmed up do drills to get us going, and then on the floor ready to go. If you've ever met my, my father, he is what you would maybe personify as joy. He's, he's a very joyful, jovial individual. But you get him on the sidelines of a basketball court that his son is playing on, that joy is just going to be translated into maybe loudness about how he feels I have been mistreated by the referees or the other team on the floor. Uh, but it, it's like, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that I would always look towards. But this is what my dad would always do. So we would talk about the game going up to wh- whatever location that we're playing at. And there's a lot of things about basketball that you can actually find success in. There's a lot of different elements that are involved in the game that are needed for a team to be successful. You need a rebound. You need to space the floor. You need to be moving the offense through it on a consistent basis. You need to be listening to one another as teammates. There's all these different elements. You need to be moving the ball well, like all these different pieces that are going to lead to a successful experience as a team, but when you are a younger individual as a basketball player, and I would even say even now, the, the thing that indicates the greatest success is what? It's putting the ball in the bucket. <laughs> it's scoring. And so I would go through a game, and it doesn't matter if I'm doing every other piece successfully If my shot is not going in, I am a grump. And my dad would tell me, we'd be post-game, he'd be like, oh, you did this really well. You were were spacing the floor. You moved the ball. You set up your teammate. You you were working hard out there. And I wanted nothing to do with it because I did not put the ball in the bucket. And therefore, by my estimation... I did not find success. My metric of success made it almost impossible for me to see the wider picture. And, it, and often, if I was in that mindset, it would make me a poor teammate. It would hurt the ability for our group to find success. It would hurt my ability to actually enjoy the game because I was so consumed with finding success by this singular metric. And here's the question I want to present to you this morning. Are you critical of yourself like this in an area of your life? That you've got a singular metric of success and everything is based around it. Perhaps it is the bottom line, it's a dollar figure. It is the ability to communicate with, with a sense of flair. It's somebody actually validating you in a certain way. Do you have an area that you are critical of yourself in your life? Where you hold yourself to a highest standard, of, perhaps of an obvious metric of success, 
but so much so that you're unable to see anything else good taking place. Now, I'm not saying scoring doesn't matter. You've got to score buckets to win the game. But I am saying that that's not the whole picture, and it actually doesn't help me in that specific area when I focus solely upon it. Because here's the, here's the truth. The good and the bad can coexist. And much is our relationship with joy. Success in our lives can be marked by a variety of different things. A good feeling, uh, you've achieved something, perhaps it's a purposeful action you've taken, it's a meaningful thank you that you received. And suffering in our lives or struggle in our lives runs the complete opposite. It's a painful feeling. It's a missed mark. It's lacking purpose. It's faking a relationship. It's, it's not feeling connection. And the question of suffering in, in, in particular, it provides the greatest challenge to belief in a loving God. Barna Group, they're, they're a data, data and research hub. They identified that those that are asking questions of faith, that the coexistence of God and suffering was the most difficult to grasp. Because here's the truth. Skeptic or not, religious or irreligious, uh, we all speak the universal language of suffering. Why? Because suffering doesn't play favorites. Trials and afflictions are not partial. Suffering trans transcends Race, ethnicity, class, and privilege, it is experienced by, to some degree by all of us. And this is just the reality of our life. But yet, this is why the idea of joy can be so fleeting and, and almost fanciful. Because we hear the promise of the Bible, the promise of the prophet Micah of a, of a coming king, of a shepherd king. And we hear the declaration of the angels in Luke that is speaking of great joy for all people. So great joy for all people, yet we know that all people also experience their own level of suffering. And to some degree, we want to ignore the suffering to embrace the joy. But the real question the honest question that we are often facing is how do I receive joy in a reality of suffering? How do I actually hold on to that promise if it is true? So I think it's worth looking at the word joy itself to start off with. There's a ton of different words that explain the experience of almost being in a good mood uh, as a human being. You can be happy, you can be cheerful, you can be joyful. And the same kind of goes for the Bible. There are Hebrew word, words like simsa and sason and, and ga'il all referring to the idea of happiness and joy. But what makes biblical words really interesting is noticing the kind of places that it says we actually experience joy. Joy is a theme that is found all throughout the Bible. And let's look at it from the very beginning. In the garden, God makes the world and it is good. 
And people are meant to actually find joy in the midst of creation. You know what I'm talking about. You're going on a beautiful high. We live in a beautiful place in the world. It doesn't feel too beautiful right now. This morning was a little dreary. But <laughs> you can go on hikes and you can end up in the mountains. And you can go by the ocean and you look out and there's a joy that you feel in that experience of the moment. It's because God has declared it to be good and you're meant to experience joy in that. And then in Psalm 104, it actually says this, for all of our wine connoisseurs or fake wine connoisseurs in the house, um, <laughs> the Bible says in Psalm 104 that a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. This is, this is, the Bible wants you to experience joy in the natural rhythms of life, both the good and the bad. Joy does not stop existing just because our circumstances change. And this is where we so often miss it. That our joy is conditional upon our circumstances when the truth of the word and the promise of God is that the joy that is promised to us is based upon the person of Jesus. And so if Jesus is the same yesterday... Today and forever. That means the joy that is meant for you is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this is why it's hard to believe. I think it's, it's one thing for me to communicate it and for, for you to be like, yeah, that's a nice idea, that's great. But yesterday sucked. <laughs> or I woke up this morning and my car did not start. Or I had to actually scrape my window for the first time this year. And it was awful. <laughs> my fingers were really cold. I suffered. We laugh, but we feel it in those moments. <laughs> like, this is the worst thing possible. This is, this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective of joy. Because in the Bible, it's presented, joy is presented, as an attitude that the people of God adopt, not due to their circumstances, but because of their hope in God. When the people of Israel are res rescued from Egypt, so everyone's probably seen to some degree, maybe you've read the Bible story or you've seen the movie Prince of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and they get to the other side and their, their enemies are vanquished and they get to the other side and what do they do? They break out into song. And they actually rejoice. And we think, well, that's a, that's a fair response. You've just, been, you've just been rescued from the possibility of slavery. You've, you've actually flown away from your enemies. And yes, to some degree, that is true. But let's realize where they ended up. They crossed the Red Sea. And they ended up not in the promised land, but in a desert. They crossed the Red Sea to a wilderness, and they rejoiced anyways. And this joy in the wilderness, it's a defining moment. It's almost like a way of saying that the joy of God's people would not be determined by their struggles, but by their hope in the future promise. And this is the posture of Israel, and this is the posture of God's people, and this continues throughout the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, and we then see it in the Gospels. When you get into the Gospel of Luke, and we heard the initial part of the Christmas story, when you continue in Luke chapter 2, you end up at a character named Simeon. 
And Simeon has been given this promise that you will one day see the Messiah, that you have been righteous and you've been devout, and I will, I, you're going to see something that you have hoped for and placed your trust in. And there is this moment where he encounters Jesus. And he has the Spirit of God actually lead him to the temple. And he encounters Jesus. And it's this moment of, whoa! My joy has been fulfilled. But here's the thing about Simeon. He wasn't just joyful when he met Jesus. This was a man known to be full of joy. This was Simeon's joy fulfilled because the future promise that he had held on to was now shown to him in the person of Jesus. He, he declares this, and this is what he says when he's praising God. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And that's Simeon. And then you go on to Paul and where you can find him sitting in a, in a dirty Roman prison. And he chose joy even if he gets executed. He calls this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. And he believed that joy was a gift of God's spirit and inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. He believed that when you believe that Jesus' love overcame death, that joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to suppress or ignore sorrow. In fact, I would contend that the Christian worldview actually invites us to believe this. That the connection of joy in the Bible is not success as the Western world would contend. But it is actually suffering. The connection of joy in the Bible is not success. It is suffering. Because joy is not simply meant to be a nice feeling on the other side of success. Joy is meant to be the perseverance of our journey. Charles Spurgeon, he says this on joy. It's a beautiful quote. He says, there is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste and comforting to the heart. The blessed joy is very contagious. One dolorous spirit brings a kind of plague into the house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he or she goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. Never are we asked to avoid suffering in an unhealthy manner. But Paul expresses it like this in 2 Corinthians 6. He says that we are to be full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. He acknowledged his pain and he made a choice that the suffering would not get the final word. He had found that the source of his joy needed to be in a better place than the fickleness of his circumstances. Because our joy is only as good as the object of it. Anything short of God himself will make a joy fall short. 
And if you're saying this morning, I, I don't know if I commit all that I have, in, all my trust into Jesus, if it will be enough. I, I, I can only contend to you this morning that I believe with all my heart that when we give our whole being to Jesus, that there is nothing that comes close to the fulfillment that you find that you find in a trust with Jesus, that joy that comes in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus, when we identify him as the object of our joy, is the same in every moment. It sustains us in the storm, it sustains us in our struggle, and it sustains us in our suffering. Because here's the truth, joy is a focus before it is a feeling. In the, in the book of Jeremiah, it, it makes the statement that our heart is deceitful. And there's a balance here. Your emotions and your feelings, they are worth considering and paying close attention to. And there is real experiences of sorrow that we encounter in this world. And we must give it the appropriate time and energy to process it through. But I don't know about you, sometimes for myself, my feelings can say a lot of things that are different than the reality of my situation. I'm not saying to completely ignore our feelings. I'm just saying not to make our feelings our source. Because if the focal point of our joy is our feelings, then doesn't matter even if our circumstances are actually all that difficult because our feelings are not always reflective of our circumstances. But if we can have our joy found in the true source of Jesus, if we can find our joy in the hope of the promise that all the things that are given to us, all the things that are shown to us as gifts of the Spirit are true, and that is the focal point, then as our circumstances change, we can stay rooted in the healthy, true, stable, strong, loving arms of a co-suffering Savior. Joy is a focus before it is a feeling. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, I, I heard a, a talk this week in preparation, and uh, they quoted the deep and wonderful theologian Bono. Uh, and Bono is quoted as saying that joy is an act of defiance. And is that not what Jesus has been revealing all throughout this Advent season? Light into darkness. Darkness, you don't get the final word. Hope into our brokenness. Brokenness, you don't get the final word. And this, this last week when we talked about peace, it's peace into the chaos, that peace is actually engaging the chaos, and therefore joy is defiance against the pain of suffering. It is a sign that we are living in another kingdom. It is Philippians declaring, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. This doesn't mean that we ignore pain and suffering in our life. It just means that we don't take 
our suffering and our circumstances as our whole measure of reality, and that is not all we give our attention to. It's not sorrow or joy. It's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's sorrow and joy. It is bringing the real struggle of our heart before a loving God with the confidence of his sustenance and his perseverance in the season we might find ourselves. It's joy in our trust in Jesus. It is joy that is defiant. Joy that is of another kingdom. And that is joy that is brought to this world. Worship team, you can come back up on the stage. And that is Jesus come to earth. And so the question we're kind of left with is then, like, what do we do to actually find joy? How do, how do we discover it for ourselves? We can talk about having an experience of joy that circumvents the circumstances that we're in. But having a source that is beyond our feeling of the moment. But how many of you are in some ways dreading some of the upcoming circumstances you're about to step into? Or perhaps you're almost dreading the dip that often comes on the other side of a Christmas season. The, the, the high of the moment and then the dip of, the Chris, uh, of, of January. We're invited to discover joy that sustains, that holds true. And I think part of, part of this process comes from the simple fact that far too often... We have held it as sorrow or joy, and we have not been honest with ourselves of what we are actually experiencing. Often, our ability to, be, our ability to survive a storm starts with our acknowledgement of the storm that we're in. If you have a ship on a topsy-turvy sea, and you ignore the storm, you are most likely not going to survive that storm. But if you recognize the storm and you place your trust in the ways that you have been led in previous seasons, the way that God has shown himself faithful, the way that God has led you and shaped you and, and moved you and been with you and reminded you over and over again that I am with you and I am for you and I'm not against you. And though this storm might feel, feel so overwhelming and rough, I have not stopped being the truth that you need in this season. Then that is both sorrow and joy. So that's my challenge to you this morning in this Advent season. Do not isolate one or the other. Do not, do not think to yourself that you're going to experience more joy by ignoring your sorrow. I would just challenge you and I would contend that you will actually experience greater joy by recognizing your sorrow. Because then we actually go to the source that is the source that we need. When we ignore our sorrow, that's when we go to our machinations of processing joy and success. 
It's, it's entering into community and relationship and, and a family and making those things as our points of joy. Yes, those can be happy. But what do you do for your joy when those things are no longer there and you're back into the mundane of January? I think there's more to discover in our seasons of sorrow for the joy that we might have. There's an incredible opportunity that we have this morning just to lean in in that, that way. So would you pray with me? And as we're praying, would you just draw to your attention maybe one, of, one or two of those measures of success that are blinding you from seeing the greater picture that's taking place in your life. A wider perspective that would actually give you a sense of joy and a sense of hope of what's taking place all around you. And perhaps you can even call to your attention right now a place where you have been going to find your happiness and your joy and you have found it lacking. Would, would we bring those idols and, and, and those, those poor substitutions before our loving God this morning and just offering it before him and saying, would you give us something more? So Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this place where everyone is at. Would you shape and guide and, and move us forward into your calling for, for this season? Thank you that this season of Advent is not just about getting to Christmas, but it's just every day discovering you. That when we wait upon the Lord, we discover who you are, and that begins to change us from the inside out. For every single person here that's feeling deeply burdened, sorrowful and struggling and it seems to be all they can see in their view I pray that your comfort and your consolation would be with them and in the midst of that comfort would come this spark of joy that would seem almost unreasonable out, out of the norm not what is expected in a moment such as these and this would be a joy unlike any other because it's a joy found in our hope that is the promise of Jesus. Give us the courage to face our sorrow, to hold sorrow and joy in this season. Give us the courage to enter into conversations that are going to be challenging but with a sense of your wider, deeper promise that will sustain us through it. may we know that you're with us through it all. Comfort each and every one of us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.